Good morning. It is a joy for me to be here. It's a joy for my family to be here. I'm going to go ahead and read our text this morning, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 16 through 21 together. It's difficult to imagine a more glorious passage for consideration. Certainly the truths that it contains are the most amazing, most wonderful truths in the universe. If you're there in John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your Son into this world that we might not perish. Thank you for sending your son into this world to take our place, to die the death that we deserve, that we might have life, that we might have eternal life. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your only son to save us. It's awesome. It is glorious. It's so good. Help me to preach your word to your people this morning in a way that is clear, in a way that is understandable, in a way that helps them to marvel at the greatness of your love, that helps them to rejoice in it, that helps them to treasure it, that helps them to take this message with them and share it with those around them. God, I pray that this would encourage them to keep on pursuing you, to keep on pursuing godliness, to keep on living their lives for you. This is a glorious text. Please teach it to us this morning. Please apply it to our lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings have a deep-seated desire to be loved. This is due to the fact that being loved is a basic human need. Most of us are aware of this. 
We understand that it's critical to our health and our well-being. It's as critical to our health and well-being as the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the clothes on our back, and the roof over our heads. And scientists have known this for some time. Babies that are neglected and deprived of physical contact and comfort are developmentally stunted and experience a number of psychological challenges as they continue to mature. And research in this area indicates that neglect or a lack of care alters the development of biological systems that are designed to govern the response to stress, our response to stress. And it leads to increased levels of anxiety and depression as well as to cardiovascular problems and other chronic health impairments. That's why many hospitals have introduced newborn cuddling programs because it helps newborns who are experiencing extended hospital stays to recover more quickly. It drastically reduces the amount of time they spend in the hospital. And so they hire people to come in and cuddle these newborns and sing and read to them. And it's been shown that this has a dramatic impact on their recovery. And the need to be loved doesn't end when we transition to adulthood. Additional studies have shown that social, social isolation and some of the oldest members of our society can lead to intense feelings of loneliness and can result in rapid cognitive decline and depression and heart disease. And what all of this research has shown, what all of these studies have shown is that human beings from infancy to old age have a fundamental need, they share a fundamental need to be loved. And the question that you might ask is why? Why do human beings need to be loved? Well, scientists have been able to demonstrate the positive benefits of being loved through numerous scientific studies and to show how neglect stresses the immune system and causes inflammation and leads to all of these diseases and all of these health problems, they haven't been able to answer the crucial question. Why? Why love? I mean, why not chocolate, right? Why not chocolate? Why doesn't chocolate satisfy us in the core of our beings? Why not football? Why not a bass boat? I think the reason that they haven't been able to answer that crucial question is because they are looking in the wrong place. The answer to that question won't be found in the laboratory. It won't be found in a white blood cell. It's found in the pages of scripture. The Bible teaches that human beings were made in the image of a loving God, that they were created to receive and reciprocate his love, that they were created to enjoy him, to live with him in a happy, harmonious glorious relationship in a gloriously loving relationship where love is not only received but given in return. The need to be loved is knitted into the very fabric of our being and it comes from this eternal intra-trinitarian love that Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed forever. It flows from the very essence of God. And while there are a number of passages that we could consider, there's a number of passages in the Old and New Testaments that speak of God's love for humanity, few are as well known or often recited as John 3, 16 through 21. 
In very simple, straightforward terms, these five verses tell us that God loves us, that he went to the greatest lengths imaginable to meet our most pressing needs, and that the consequences of rejecting his love are eternally fatal. Now, before we dive into our verses this morning, I want to take a few minutes and just help us to understand the surrounding context. And the motivation for doing that is if you look at verse 16, it says, for, right? It begins with this word for. And those of you who've been reading your Bibles for a while know that this means that what is said here in verse 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 depends on what was said beforehand, on what was said in the preceding verses. And what we find as we dig into chapter 3 is that these verses sort of form the conclusion to a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. If you read verse 1 through 15, you see that what we find in verses 16 through 21 is the conclusion to this conversation. And this is a conversation that Jesus had with a sincerely religious man. So if we were to go back and we were to read these verses and to look at them, what we would find is that Nicodemus is a sincerely religious man. If you look at verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night, and he had some questions for Jesus. But the first thing that we learn, or how John introduces this character, is he says that he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were one of several religious groups in Jesus' day. They were actually the largest group, and they were a group that carefully followed the Mosaic Law. They carefully followed the Law of Moses. They were very strict in their observance of the law. And their name actually means the separated ones. And that's most likely a reference to this devotion that they had or to this devotion that they cultivated, that they tried to live out of. And I think the reason that they chose this name was because they had done just that. They had separated themselves to God. They had devoted themselves to observing his law and teaching his commandments. And if you remember what Paul says in Philippians 3, what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, he says that he was a Pharisee also. When he describes his former life outside of Christ, he says he was a Pharisee. He was one of these individuals who dedicated their life to this strict observance of God's law that had this fervent zeal for keeping God's commandments. The Pharisees were also religious scholars. And one of the things that John is going to say, or one of the aspects of the conversation that John is going to record, is that Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel. Now, what's important for us to see is that Jesus doesn't refer to him as a teacher in Israel. So Jesus is talking to him about all of these things that he should have already known. As a sincerely devout individual who was well-versed in the Old Testament, there was several things that come up in this conversation that he should have been aware of. And as Jesus was talking with him and explaining what God's kingdom is like and how you gain access into God's kingdom and what it means to be born again or, or what it's like to be born again and how this is a requirement for entering into God's kingdom, 
he highlights this fact that you should have known these things. And one of the ways he does it is by saying, are you, are you the teacher of Israel and you're asking me these questions? Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Nicodemus was probably one of the most well-known theologians in his day. He was a renowned scholar. If he wasn't the preeminent theologian in his day, he was one of those scholars that everybody knew. Okay, he was the teacher in Israel. And it seems that he was probably the most well-known and most accomplished theologian in his day. Jesus calls him the teacher in Israel. Not a teacher, but the teacher in Israel. Another thing that we learn about Nicodemus is that he was a ruler of the Jews. So he belonged to the Jewish ruling council, to the Sanhedrin. And that was a governmental body that oversaw the affairs of the people living in Judea, of Jews living in Judea. And that sort of gives us this window into his life that he was also a person who exercised considerable influence. He had considerable clout. Um, he would have been a member of an elite class. And we also learn that Nicodemus was not just a renowned scholar. He was not just a Pharisee. He was not just a member of the ruling class. But we also see that he was someone who was pursuing the truth. And we see that he was someone who was humble and respectful and inquisitive. So when he comes to Jesus and he is asking him questions and he's trying to put together the pieces, he's trying to understand how the ministry of Jesus fit with his understanding of God's kingdom. And the two weren't really jiving very well. This was not the Messiah that he expected. This was not the individual that he expected to come and to deliver Israel. So he goes to him, and he goes in a respectful way, and he says to Jesus, Rabbi. So he's heard Jesus teaching, he's seen the miracles that he's done, and he goes to this poor circuit preacher from Nazareth, okay, which um, was kind of a know-nothing town um, that, you know, was sort of out of the way, and um, one of his one of his disciples would even say before he meets him, could anything good come out of Nazareth? So as Andrew goes and gets uh, Nathaniel, um, he tells him, he said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's how he treats this poor circuit preacher from Nazareth. He treats him as an equal. As I mentioned, he was humble and he was inquisitive. And he came trying to put the pieces together to um, reconcile his thoughts with the kingdom with the wonderfully surprising ministry of the Lord Jesus. And he was courageous. He was principled. He was a man of conviction. He wasn't necessarily worried about what risk was involved in going to see Jesus. So the text says that Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night. And some commentators believe that Nicodemus went to see Jesus by night to avoid being seen. And while that's a plausible explanation, it hardly suggests that Nicodemus was a coward. If there was some risk involved in securing an audience with Jesus, it was nonetheless a risk that he was willing to take. And so he risked his position, he risked his good name for the sake of the truth. 
And in my personal opinion, as I've considered this and studied this and read through this passage, I think that John's reference to the timing of Nicodemus' visit is consistent with his repeated use of darkness throughout his gospel. It's intended to prove comments that he makes in chapter 1, verses 5, 10, and 11, and then also again in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. John is saying that the light shined in the darkness. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, John says the light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not grasped it. The darkness has not comprehended it. The darkness has not perceived who Jesus is. It says that when he came to his own people, his own people, the Jews, the people who should have been awaiting his coming, who should have been expecting him, they did not receive him when he came. And chapter 2 says, because of this, because of the rejection that he faced, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He goes to Jerusalem. He actually ends up clearing the temple. He gets into a confrontation with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders. And they're largely not receptive to his ministry. There were some who believed, but by and large, they're not receptive to his ministry. So when John mentions this fact that it was dark, that he came to him at night, I think that what he's trying to say is that the people that Jesus came to, his own people, the Jews, they were ignorant of, of God's kingdom, just like Nicodemus was. They didn't quite understand it. They didn't quite get it. They didn't understand all the details. They didn't expect this kind of Messiah. And so John uses this as a picture to highlight what's taking place in Israel. The entire conversation was shrouded in darkness. Jesus' ministry was shrouded in darkness. It was misunderstood. It wasn't comprehended. And so the reason that it's so important to talk about these things and the reason that it's so important to point out that Nicodemus was devout, that he was a Pharisee, that he was a scholar, was that everything Nicodemus should have understood from his study of the scriptures should have prepared him for Jesus and for the salvation that he would bring. It should have prepared him to look to the Son of Man who was lifted up for his salvation. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have accepted the prophetic writings of God's word, and Nicodemus would have read Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19, and 36, 26, and Isaiah 44, 3, and Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and he should have been prepared for Jesus' comments on the new birth, on the radical, internal, spiritual transformation wrought by God's spirit. He should have read Daniel 12, 1 through 2, he should have been prepared for Jesus' comments on everlasting life and eternal judgment. And like every devout Jew, he should have read Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And that's the story that Jesus references in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He should have read that, and he should have been prepared to escape God's judgment by looking, that is, by trusting in God's means of salvation. In every case, what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament was eclipsed by the arrival of God's Son, by his mission and ministry, by all that he accomplished on our behalf, by fulfilling every one of God's promises, by taking away our sins and granting us eternal life. Verses 16 through 21 weren't made in a vacuum. They're important. They're important to understanding the text we're studying this morning, and they flowed from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. 
and they contain some of the most stunning expressions of God's love in all of Scripture. And as we study this passage this morning, I want to draw your attention to five truths, to five key thoughts that the Apostle John uses to convey the greatness of God's love. These truths are stated in verse 16, and that's where we'll spend most of our time. They're stated in verse 16, and then they're going to be explored in greater detail in verses 17 through 21. And the truths that John presents in this passage are as follows. Number one, the motive is love. It says, for God so loved. Number two, the object is surprising. God so loved the world. Number three, the cost is immeasurable. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The consequences, point number four, the consequences are unimaginably dreadful. You see that when he says that whoever believes in him should not perish. Perish. The consequences are unimaginably dreadful. And then the final point is the blessings are eternally satisfying. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, this is the reason we celebrate Christmas. This is the reason that for 2,000 years, the church has been singing and celebrating the love of God for us. It's because it's so great. It's because he gave us his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And my prayer for us this morning is that as we work through this text, God would grow our understanding of his great love. So look with me again at verse 16. Point number one. The motive is love. For God so loved As we just discussed, God begins with this word for, which indicates that what is communicated in this verse is dependent upon what was communicated in the preceding verses. And the conversation that's recorded in verses 1 through 8 leads to a second conversation that's recorded in verses 9 through 15 about how the Son of Man would come, about how he would be lifted up, about how Whoever looks to him in faith would experience a new life, would experience new life. And that life is called eternal life in verse 16. What Jesus says in verses 14 and 15 flows right into what he says in verses 16 and 17. And the connection between these verses is quite remarkable if you take some time to just pause and look at it. The degree to which they overlap, their their symmetry, it makes it very difficult to confuse what Jesus is saying, to miss his point. The lifting up of the Son of Man, verses 14 and 15, it corresponds to the giving of God's only Son. Faith in the Son of Man, described in verse 15, corresponds to faith in the Son of God in verse 16. New life or eternal life through faith in the Son of Man corresponds to eternal life through faith in the Son of God. And all of this hinges on the fact that God chose to save. That God chose to save rather than condemn. The guilty deserve to be judged. 
The guilty deserve to be judged. That's what a good judge does. He judges the guilty. But this judge chose to extend mercy rather than to exact justice. That's incredible. That's remarkable. That's noteworthy. And you might ask, why? Why would he do that? Why would God give the guilty a chance? Why would he seek their rehabilitation? Why would he seek their restoration? Why would he do something like that? What would motivate him to do something like that for guilty people? And the answer to that question is found in the very first part of this verse. Because God so loved the world. Because God loves the world so much. His motive is love. His motive in saving us is love. That is an incredible answer. That is awesome revelation from God. If you were to ask God why he did what he did, why he chose to extend mercy, why he chose to be gracious to sinners like us, he would say, because I love you. Because I loved you so much. Let that sink in. Let that simmer for just a minute. Let it brighten your year. Let it control your mood this holiday season. There is all kinds of stress and distractions. There is all kinds of pressure that you're feeling. And perhaps your fuse is a little bit short. Let that control your mood this holiday season. Let that inspire awe and wonder this Christmas that God loves you. Because it doesn't have to be that way. Do you realize that? It doesn't have to be that way. God doesn't have to love you. God could judge you. God could judge every sinner. God could judge every guilty party and be a perfectly just judge. Be infinitely worthy of praise for being a perfectly just judge. God could do that. But that's not what John 3.16 says he chose to do. It says, he, it says that God so loved the world. It says that God loves. Just that idea alone is remarkable. And the fact that God loves means that there's hope. There's hope. If God loves the world, there's hope. There's hope that he's going to fix the mess that we're in. There's hope that he's going to fix this broken world. There's hope that he's going to fix broken people like us. It means that he sees us perishing in the darkness. And because he loves us, he's going to do something about it. Friends, that's good news. The simple, clear, concise truth that John 3.16 communicates is that God loves you. Don't miss that. The one true God, the almighty, all-powerful, infinitely glorious God loves you. You. Y-O-U. You. He loves you. That's what John is saying. Let that sink in. Let that soothe your aching heart. I don't know the hurts that you carry with you this morning. I don't know what troubles followed you through the door. Perhaps for you, Christmas time is a trigger for all kinds of negative emotions. I don't know how you're hurting this morning. 
Perhaps it's a struggling marriage or strained relationships with your kids or unemployment or illness or loss. Whatever you are dealing with, I want you to hear this. God cares about all of it. If God didn't spare his only son but freely gave him up for you, there's nothing he won't do for you. There's nothing he won't help you with. There's nothing he won't help you with. Let that comfort your soul. And after it does, let it stir your heart to worship. Let it fuel your service. Let it dictate your priorities. Let it motivate you to care for those around you. Let it ignite a passion for evangelism. Let it transform your life. And for those of you that may be coming here this morning, and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I just want to urge you to do so, to accept this loving offer of salvation from your loving creator God, because the consequences are unimaginably dreadful, and we'll talk about it, and we'll get there as we continue to work through the passage. But hear that and heed that, and for those of you who have embraced Christ and you've rejoiced in his love and you've been so uh, you, you've, you've trusted him and you've experienced his love don't, don't get this twisted don't get this idea twisted that um, God loves you because you're kind of cute or because you're kind of a big deal the text doesn't say that God reached out to the world in love because it was so great or so good or so lovable. It simply says that God loved the world. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 7 through 8 puts it like this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the point is that there was nothing within the people of Israel that caused God to love them. He loved them because he loved them. He loved them because he chose to set his love on them. He loved them because he is a loving God, not because they were so numerous or impressive or attractive. First John takes this idea one step further and roots God's love for the world in his very essence. First John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God loves because God is love. It's saying something about who he is. It's saying something about the very core of his being. Love is who God is. It's what he does. It's what flows most naturally from his being. Loving others is what he's most inclined to do. It's what motivated him to send his son to be the savior of the world. John doesn't want us to miss this. So in verse 17, he's as clear as he can possibly be. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Why? Because he loved the world so much. Because the love between Father, Son, and Spirit was so great, so uncontainable, it bubbled over and spilled onto the world and brought it into being and provided for its salvation. When God encounters broken people, when God encounters people who are living in darkness, people who are headed for destruction, his innate impulse is to love them. His first response is not to condemn, it's to love, to show compassion, to show mercy, to show grace. And when God's love encounters a world headed for eternal destruction, it looks like sending his only son to rescue it. It looks like the greatest love we could ever know. Point number two, the object is surprising. The text says, for God so loved the world, the world is the object of God's love. Now, when John refers to the world, he's not so much referring to the planet, to rocks and trees and skies and seas, as he is to the people who inhabit it. Take John 1.10 through 12, for instance. It says, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. While initially it may seem that God is talking about the physical, or excuse me, while initially it may seem that John is talking about the physical world, by the time you get to the end of verse 12, you see that the world knows, the world receives, or doesn't receive. The world includes races of people, like the Jews. The world is adopted into God's family by believing in the name of Jesus, or not adopted into God's family because of the rejection of Jesus. Everything that John eventually says of the world would be quite strange if he were referring to Mount Everest, or the Pacific Ocean, or the Grand Canyon, or the Sea of Galilee, or the Jordan River. When John refers to the world, he is referring to people. He is talking about humanity. He is talking about us. So when the Bible says that God so loved the world, it's not saying that God really, really loves sandy beaches and palm trees and stunning sunsets. It's saying that God loves us. That God loves all of us. And what makes this statement so spectacular is not the fact that there's a whole lot of us. That's how most of us read this passage. That's how most people interpret this passage or think about what John is saying in this passage. They think something like this. It must take a lot of love to love that many people. If God loves that many people, he must be really loving. His love must be really, really great. And while there's truth in that statement, God does have an infinite capacity to love. And elsewhere in Scripture, he does say that Jesus died for the whole world. That's not how John typically talks about the world in his writings. The world has a sinister side. The world is as bad as it is big. And when John talks about the world, that's the point he's most often making. Take our passage, for example. So in verse 19, it says, The light has come into the world. Okay, the light has come into the world. 
and people. John's not switching focus. The people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So what we see is that the world is people. And these people loved darkness rather than light. Their works were evil. They do, verse 20, wicked things. They hate the light. They don't come to the light. And this theme can be traced throughout John's letters. This is just one of many examples. So what makes God's love for the world so spectacular is not that the world is so big, but that it's so bad. D.A. Carson comments on John's usage of the world, and he says this, In John's gospel, the world does not so much refer to bigness as to badness. In John's vocabulary, world is primarily the moral order and willful and culpable rebellion against God. In John 3.16, God's love in sending the Lord Jesus is to be admired, not because it is extended to so big a thing as the world, but to so bad a thing, not to so many people as to such wicked people. What John's use of the world teaches is that God's love is wonderfully surprising. It's the last thing anyone would have expected. We tend to reserve our affection for those we deem worthy of it. God, on the other hand, loves those who are least deserving of his love. If God only loved the eminently religious, the missionaries, the full-time Christian workers, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, members of the choir, the people who run soup kitchens and halfway houses and after-school programs for at-risk youth, we might accuse God of loving those who loved him, of some sort of tribalism, of pandering to his base. But again, That's not what the text says. It says that God loves the world, not because of what it does for him, not because it operates in perfect submission to his will, not because it's constantly telling him how great he is. God loves the world despite its sinfulness. And when the merciful God looks upon this lost, fallen, sin-sick world, he isn't repulsed. He's moved to compassion. He responds to its filth and its failures with grace and love. He acts for the world's benefit, not his own. And when we stop to consider all that John says about God's love, we have to confess, just as we did a few minutes ago, there's no greater love. There's no love that is greater than the love of God. God proved that by giving his son. When we consider that God loves the world, we also come to realize that there's no love that is pure. God proved that by giving his son for the world, for sinners like us. Point number three, the cost is immeasurable. God gave his only son. John 3.16 says that God gave his only son. 
The depth of love that's communicated in the second part of this verse is difficult to comprehend. The price that was paid to secure our salvation can't be counted. It is, in the final analysis, immeasurable. We can't get our arms fully around it. We can't wrap our minds completely around it. And I think there's a sense in which we won't ever fully understand the depths of God's love. But it's worth the effort, and we'll give it a try this morning. And Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that we would have strength to understand the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us in Christ. And I pray the same thing. And I pray that we would just get a little bit more this morning, that we'd understand just a little bit more, we'd grasp just a little bit more. And I just want to point our attention first to the fact that God gave us his son. He gave us his son. When God created human beings, when he designed the nuclear family, dad, mom, son, daughter, he did it ultimately to teach us about himself, about his son, about the love that they shared, and someday what it would cost him to give that son up. Parents, you, you understand this. You have insight into the depths of God's love because you understand and know the depth of love that you have for your children. You love them so much. They're special. They're precious to you. And every parent who's lost a child knows the heartbreak that it brings. It's like losing a part of yourself. It's one of the most difficult things any parent will ever go through because the love a parent has for their child is so deep. It's so great. That's what it means for God to love us. It's like loving a child. That's how great it is. That's how much God loves us. He gave us his son. And as you think about that, it has to be along those same lines or else he wouldn't have given so precious a gift. But Jesus wasn't just any son. He wasn't the black sheep. He wasn't the ugly duckling. The phrase only son, the phrase only son, is an allusion to Genesis 22-2, where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, what's interesting about this command is that Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son, right? He had other sons. He had another son. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. So the phrase only son must be referring to something other than a numerical value. He's not referring to the one son that Abraham had. God wasn't referring to that son. Instead, he's referring to Abraham's one-of-a-kind son, to Abraham's unique son, to the son born according to God's promise, to the son through whom the covenant that God gave to Abraham would be fulfilled. It also refers to the son that Abraham cherished. The text says, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Isaac was the treasured son, 
the beloved son, the son that Abraham adored. And the picture that's provided in Genesis 22 is meant to inform our understanding of John 3.16 when it says God gave his only son. It's highlighting the fact that Jesus is God's one-of-a-kind son. It's highlighting the fact that Jesus' relationship with the Father transcends all other relationships within the family of God. God does have other sons. We're all called his sons and daughters. In other places, angels are called God's sons. But none is like Jesus. No other son is like Jesus. None are so special. None are so precious. None are so worthy. If we only read John's gospel, we would come to see that Jesus is the word. That's what the opening verses of John's gospel say. Jesus is the word. He's the ultimate revelation of God and the supreme manifestation of his glory. We would see that Jesus is eternal, that he created all things, that he was always at the Father's side. We would see that he's the true light who dispels the darkness and declares God's righteousness. We would see that he's the good shepherd who willingly lays down his life for the sheep and keeps them until the very end. He keeps them safe for all eternity. We would see that Jesus is the great high priest who intercedes for his people. When God looks at the Son, he sees infinite holiness and infinite righteousness and infinite love. He sees infinite power and wisdom and creativity. He sees infinite grace and infinite truth. He sees infinite compassion and infinite humility. When he looks at Jesus, he sees the splendors of his own perfections reflected back to him in the face of his Son. There's no one like Jesus. There's no greater gift that could be given. What could God give that's more precious than Jesus? What could God give that's more valuable than his Son? What more could God prove? What more could God do to prove his love for the world? There's nothing more he could do. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac marked the highest expression of his love for God. The cross marked the highest expression of God's love for the world. When God the Father sacrificed God the Son, the cross became the greatest possible display of God's love for this fallen world. God gave what was most valuable at greatest cost to himself to accomplish our eternal good. That's love. That's love. Point number four. The consequences are unimaginably dreadful. The text says that whoever believes in him should not perish. Verse 18 goes on to say that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This verse makes a very sobering claim. There are some who will not believe. God is reaching out to the world in love. It's reaching out to the world in love, but some are going to reject him. Some are going to refuse his love. They're going to refuse his love because they hate his lordship. They'll refuse his kindness because it exposes their depravity. They'll refuse the truth because they love the darkness. Not everyone who hears the good news of God's love will look to Jesus and be saved. That's what these verses are saying. Some are going to perish. 
And what that means is that they are going to die. That's the point in verses 14 and 15. That's the point of the story that Jesus referred to in Numbers chapter 21. When the Israelites, who had disobeyed in the wilderness, were bit by the venomous snakes that God had sent to punish them, if they did not look to the bronze serpent that was raised up, they would die. They would perish. That's the background to the point that Jesus makes here. It foreshadowed the cross. And the only difference between that story and what Jesus says now is that the stakes are infinitely higher. The word perish is juxtaposed with the phrase eternal life. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those terms are equal and opposite. The consequences of persisting in unbelief are as awful as the benefits of trusting in Jesus are awesome. The result of rejecting Christ is eternal death. If the benefit, if the blessing that is being presented is eternal life, the consequence is eternal death. It's eternal destruction. It's eternal suffering outside God's presence in a place called the lake of fire what the book of Revelation would refer to as the lake of fire. That is sobering news. The thought of unending death, of eternal anguish, is unimaginably dreadful. It's almost too terrible to even think about or talk about. And some of you might be feeling that this morning, and I understand that. There might be some of you here today who think that that is just way too harsh. That is way too harsh of a thing for a loving God to do or say. And I just want to give a couple of quick responses to that thought. If John is correct, if John's right in the things that he says, and we believe that he is, and Jesus is the source of life, then death is the logical consequence of being separated from him. If you separate yourself from the source of life, the only possible outcome is death. There's nothing else that could come about from disconnecting yourself from the source of life, from disconnecting yourself from Christ. It's the inevitable consequence of doing so. If you walk away from the Lord, if you walk away from Christ, if you reject this offer that God has made, the only thing left is death. The second response that I would give is that no one who is judged by God, no one who experiences God's judgment, is punished undeservedly. Everyone who experiences God's judgment deserves it. Remember back to verses 19 and 20. The world referring to every unbeliever, every unrepentant sinner. The world living in moral and culpable rebellion against God loves darkness. They hate the light. They do wicked things. And human depravity was on full display when Jesus came 
and he was performing signs and wonders and healing people and doing good and preaching the truth. The world crucified him. The world murdered him. The world got rid of him. The world couldn't say no to Jesus any louder. That was humanity's response to the grace and goodness of the Lord Jesus when he came. They hated him. They hated the fact that his goodness was exposing their sinfulness. And in the end, God will prove himself to be completely just because those people who reject Christ are going to get exactly what they always wanted, an eternity apart from Christ. So friend, don't don't reject this offer any longer. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Turn from the darkness. Stop pretending there's no God. Trust in Christ. And trust your life to his care. He's your only hope. Don't stay in the darkness. Don't pursue the pleasures of sin. Don't trade the pleasures of sin for eternal satisfaction in Christ. Don't trade the eternal satisfaction in Christ for lesser things. Trust Jesus. Trust him. Trust him and be saved. Trust him and be made new. Point number five. The blessings are eternally satisfying. Verse 16 ends by saying, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God demonstrates his great love for us by meeting our greatest need, our need to be saved, our need to be reconciled to God, our need to escape God's wrath. And as we've discussed, it wasn't easy. Okay, it wasn't, it cost God greatly. And if God was going to step in and help us, it would cost him. Um, And this cost came at the price of his son, his only son, his treasured son. Jesus was beaten and brutalized and mocked and crucified and forsaken so that we might have life. God sent him to rescue us and to take our place and to assume the punishment that we deserved. And when Jesus did that, The text says that he gave us eternal life. And when John talks about this benefit, eternal life, this benefit of trusting in Christ, he doesn't go into great detail. He doesn't really give us an exhaustive list of what that looks like. But we do have a window into what that is if we just go back a few verses and look at what he's already said in this passage, because this is exactly what he was talking to Nicodemus about. And so what exactly is this blessing? What exactly is this benefit, eternal life? It's granted by God's Spirit. Okay, it's something that God's Spirit accomplishes. And it involves cleansing from sin. It involves this radical internal transformation It's kind of like having heart surgery. It's kind of like having your heart circumcised. That's how the Old Testament puts it. It's like having your heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. It's like being born again. 
It includes access into an everlasting kingdom, and it includes forgiveness. The Israelites that looked to the bronze serpent were spared God's judgment. They received life instead of death. And now everyone who trusts in Jesus as the supreme agent of God's deliverance receives unending life. That's the point. It's freedom from the guilt of sin. It's escape from the consequences of sin. It's righteousness. It's new life in God's spirit. It's access into the very presence of God where there is full joy and never-ending delight. It is access to God himself. John 17 says that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. It's being reconciled to God. It's being able to enjoy God forever. It's God giving himself to us. That's eternal life. And it's amazing and it's wonderful and it's awesome. This is the blessing that God has secured for you in Christ. This is what it's like to be loved by God. This is how God shows his love to us. This is how he shows us how much he loves us. He gives us what is best. He gives us all that he can. He gives us himself at the greatest possible cost. And when we consider all that God has given us in Christ, when we consider our salvation, when we consider the extravagance of this gift and the pains that were taken to secure it, it magnifies God's love for us. If we only had this gift to consider, if we only had to consider what God has given us in Christ, we would have to confess that no one has ever loved us like this. No one has ever given us so much. Perhaps you've received a gift that was particularly special to you. Perhaps at some point in your life you've had a Christmas that you'll never forget. Perhaps there was a present that you received that was particularly costly or um, maybe something that your parents had given you as you were growing up. Um, And as you grew up, you came to realize how much that present cost them, that they had to scrimp and to save, that they had to work overtime for several years to get the funds together to purchase this gift for you. And as you reflect on that gift years later, you realize that it was so costly. You realize how much your parents sacrificed to purchase it. And you begin to see how deeply they loved you. And that's just a faint glimmer of God's love for us. That's just a faint glimmer of the inexpressible gift that God has given to us. And I would just encourage you to rejoice in that, to be amazed by that, to give thanks to God for it. That's what it's like to be loved by God. I want to just end with a few concluding applications and we'll be brief. I've mentioned this a couple of times in the sermon already and um, I just want to say it one more time. This passage is urging you to trust in Jesus. If you've never trusted in Christ, turn from your sins, what the Bible calls repenting, and put your faith in Jesus. Jesus 
was telling Nicodemus these things so that he would turn from his religion of works. He was turning from his religion of trying to earn God's favor, to merit God's love, and to trust Jesus Christ who came to demonstrate it and who came to secure his salvation. God wanted Nicodemus, Jesus wanted Nicodemus to believe the truth, to believe on him. And I would just urge you to do that. Um, And then secondly, I would just urge you to rejoice in God's love. This Christmas, this coming year, don't miss an opportunity to rejoice in God's love. Don't miss an opportunity to celebrate God's love. He's worthy. He's done more for us than we can possibly comprehend. And what he's done to secure our salvation at the cost of his son is worthy of eternal praise. That's what the book of Revelation says is going to happen. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne, praising the lamb that was slain for them. Worship the Lord. Give thanks to him. Rejoice in his love. And then share God's love. Follow Jesus' example. Tell others how much God loves them. Tell them about the cost. Tell them about the consequences. Tell them about the blessings. And pray. Pray that God would call them out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And then finally, keep pursuing the light. And we'll end where our passage ends this morning. It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Keep pursuing God. Keep pursuing righteousness. Keep walking according to God's commands. Keep loving him. Keep loving others. Keep serving him. Keep walking in the light. Keep living in God's light. Because when we do, it glorifies God. It draws attention to the radical difference that, it's, that he's made in our lives. And it's good for us. It keeps us close to him. We have fellowship with him, First John says. And it is powerfully evangelistic. God will use the good works that you do to testify to his greatness and to draw others to himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the glorious truths that it communicates. God, help us all to grow in our understanding of your love. Help us all to grow in our appreciation of your love. God, help us to share your love with others. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.